Have you ever watched or attended a conference and been in awe of the speakers? How do they know so much information? How do they prepare a talk? How do they even get the courage to speak in the first place? And what is that process like? In this episode, we'll delve into all things conference talks. This is a very special episode because it's our last episode of the season. We've decided to release our podcast in seasons, which gives us more time to plan out our episodes and schedule guests ahead of time. We'll be taking the month of December off and we'll be back with brand new episodes in January. So with that, let's jump right in. Welcome to the Ladybug Podcast. I'm Kelly. I'm Allie. And I'm Emma, and we're debugging the tech industry. Are you a developer looking for your next challenge? Meet Shopify. They're on a mission to make commerce better for everyone, and they do things a bit differently. They don't tell you how to solve problems. They give you the tools, trust, and autonomy to build new solutions. They don't want you to work alone. They're structured so you can leverage the diverse perspectives across teams in everything you do. And they don't pretend to have all the answers. They're big enough for you to tackle problems at scale, but small enough for you to discover and solve new problems. If you're a builder at heart who wants to solve highly technical problems, if you want to take all of your life experiences and apply them to a blank canvas, or if you want to access really powerful tools, Shopify is the place for you. Visit shopify.com careers today. Okay, so let's kick things off with talking about our experience speaking at conferences. I know both of you have way more experience than I do, so one of you go first. I can go. So I did not go to conferences for my first couple years in tech at all. Like I had never been to a conference until I went to this one that my company sponsored at the time. I noticed that they did not have very many women speaking at all. Like I think that they had one or two and they were all speaking about like what it was like to be a woman in tech. And I think that that can be definitely a pattern. But I, after that, saw a call for papers, which is the application process that you go through in order to speak at a conference. And I saw that. I was like, maybe I should apply and talk about a technical thing. And so I just really randomly submitted this um, calls for papers. This is before I blogged or anything like that. I ended up getting accepted and kind of spiraled from there. So I... Definitely took some time off before doing my second talk, but from there, I only count meetups and conferences combined, so I don't necessarily know how many conferences I speak at, but I think I did 20-something talks that first year, and then this year, I did like 15, I think. Are you nuts? Oh my goodness. so many. Yeah, it's a lot, and it totally spirals, though, because once you do some, then people are like, oh, you should speak at my thing, too, and oh, this talk would be awesome at this, and so it just kind of spirals from there. You've probably experienced that, too. But that was part of your job, wasn't it? Was, like, dev advocacy? Yeah, for a couple months, I was somewhat half-and-half dev advocate and software engineer, so kind of part of my job at that point. But for most of my time, I've been teaching at General Assembly, and it's definitely not part of my job there. In fact, I have to take like my vacation days and stuff to speak. So definitely much more difficult, usually, than it was when I was working at Dev. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, this was my first year speaking at conferences. I I set a goal for myself this year to speak at one, and I applied to one. It was React React Girls London. It was earlier this year. I think maybe it was in May, April. And I got accepted, which is super exciting. So it was my first conference. But then, um, you know, as my Twitter following kind of grew, I think 
I got contacted by a lot of different conferences to be a speaker, which is, you know, I was really grateful for those experiences. And I think I agreed to speak at maybe 10, but I ended up having to back out of four um, for personal reasons this year, which is really sad. But what I quickly realized is that trying to speak at this many as, you know, your first go around is really, really tough mentally. So yeah, that's my experience. I did some fun ones. I got to meet Allie in person in North Carolina, which was a ton of fun. Shout out to All Things Open because Todd did a great job organizing that. That was one of the best conferences I've ever been to. It really was. And there were so many great speakers there. Um, Kent Dodds gave a really great Kino, Essig, Chris Coyer, and Tracy Lee. There were a ton of Ashley McNamara. Hers was so good too. I loved Ashley's. I thought it was super relatable. We'll link Ashley. We'll link them all down in the show notes, just so you have them. So yeah, that's my experience. Kelly, have you spoke? You've spoken at some conferences, right? Yeah, yeah. So I did my first conference talk last year in September. Um, I. And being in the e-commerce space, I don't really enjoy doing technical talks. I don't really enjoy doing talks on like development-related topics in general. So all of my speaking engagements that I've done have always been uh, e-commerce related. So I, I did my first one at Shopify Pursuit, which was a conference for Shopify partners. That's about starting an agency and growing an agency. Um, I did a talk for, uh, it's called the Boutique Summit. It's for a bunch of people uh, who own boutiques. And it was in Atlanta and it was on like conversion rate optimization and that kind of stuff that bores everybody else. And did I do? Oh yeah, I did one with uh, with Mailchimp as well on email marketing. So yeah, those have been those have been mine. I've I've been avoiding doing technical talks all of my life, and I'm going to continue doing that. See, that's funny because I am of the same mentality. So I I gave a live coding talk, which was super ambitious, given that it was like my second talk ever, and it was in front of like nearly a thousand people on the most massive stage ever. And I gave a live coding talk, building a portfolio with Gatsby, and I nearly uh, soiled myself, uh, keep it, keeping it PG. <laughs> it was terrifying. And what I realized, Kelly, too, is I don't like giving tech talks because then you get questions too. Like, so I gave a, a give. If you give a talk on a tech topic, people think that you like are an expert in like all these tangential spaces within that. Like I spoke at a GraphQL conference, which we joked the other day that what is it conference driven development where like you sign up to do a conference, you don't know the technology in and out, but you signed up anyway. And GraphQL day was one of those for me where I was like, okay, I don't really know GraphQL, but like, let's do it. And I gave a talk on Gatsby, building a blog with Gatsby and GraphQL and, and people kept coming up and like asking these super technical questions about Gatsby with contentful and chop up, like all these other like add ons. And I'm like, I literally have no clue. <laughs> I much prefer like the career-based talks or like the, the theoretical talks. Yeah. So I am totally the opposite because I teach all the time so or teach people how to code. And so I give technical talks that are two and a half hours long, like twice a day, most days. So for me, giving like a technical talk, I'm so used to that. This year at Codeland, though, I... Which is also an incredible conference. You should definitely check it out. Uh, Codeland by Saranya Barak, who does Code Newbie. It's just the greatest. And so I did a talk there about my journey and blogging and how I got into programming in the first place. And it was super deep and it was terrifying. I was literally having like a panic attack the whole morning. Like I was full body shaking before I went on. And so for me doing the like, 
this is my life. This is how I got into programming. That is so much scarier than doing something technical because I'm so used to the the technical stuff. That's so interesting. See, I find the my life experience talks to be so much easier because mm-hmm. nobody can be like, well, actually, that wasn't your experience. <laughs> nobody can question me because it was literally my life. Well, actually, Kelly, Shopify is not Spotify. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I get that one a lot. Yeah. Keeps things interesting. You know, we just briefly touched on this. What can you talk about as a first time, you know, as wanting to be a first time speaker? Does it have to be technical? And the short answer is no, it does not. A lot of soft skills. So when I say soft skills, I don't mean skills that are less important than tech skills. They're just skills that apply across any job field versus hard skills, which are those that are going to apply directly to, to, you know, the tech industry in particular. So soft skills are something that are really covetable and not taken as seriously maybe as tech skills. And if you give a talk on soft skills or like I just gave a tech talk, a tech talk, a talk <laughs> on culture and how different cultures uh, collaborate, and communicate and how that can enhance your team's productivity. It doesn't need to be technical. It can definitely be theory based. It can be based in psychology. It can be based in team building. So long as, you know, it's going to be relevant in some way to the audience i generally find organizers are super laid back about it not being technical i think it's a a really great addition to any kind of conference talk like schedule in general because not everybody's going to relate to every single technical talk that's that's there but the uh, non-technical talks are super relatable uh you know especially if they're just like personal growth how to learn you know everyone has their own experiences but we can all learn from each other's experiences and that's why these these non-technical talks are so beneficial totally i do two talks that are kind of non-technical and these ones don't make me nervous. It's really just telling my life story that that makes me nervous. But so I do one on blogging and one on teaching. And those two, they, they always get a bunch of people that come to them and people are really complimentary. So definitely, even if they're not like how to write GraphQL queries, people still totally benefit from that. I think too, even if you decide you want to go the technical route, it doesn't have to be live coding. And additionally, it doesn't have to be expert level. When you attend a conference, it's very much mentally draining to sit through talk after talk that is like expert level tech talk. And so like Kelly mentioned, like having non-technical talks to break up that struggle of having to retain attention. Those are really good, but also beginner level talks are also great because not every attendee is going to be an expert and it's also good. So when I spoke at that GraphQL conference and I wasn't a GraphQL expert, I did get people coming up to me after saying they really appreciated the low level or high level, depending on how you look at it, like the beginner introductory talk because they themselves were also beginners. And a lot of these expert level talks, they don't tell you what the acronyms are. They don't like explain what all these different technologies are. And when you can give a beginner level talk, it'll reach, you know, maybe some of the audience who up until that point was not engaged. I think that's a really, a really good point. I think I, I really like 101 level talks for that specific reason, because when you've been in, you know, involved in a certain technology for so long, you forget what people don't know. And these 101 talks are a really great opportunity, especially for new speakers who may not have a ton of experience on a specific topic to like, you know, test the waters and see, you know, what it is that they do know, because they know the beginners, the beginner level, they know how they learn because it's more, you know, recent history. So I think that that having those those 101 level talks are are definitely a a great option. Yeah. And I think oftentimes intermediate people on a topic are the best people to give 
beginner level talks because they have been through the introductory process really recently and so they still know the pitfalls they know the difficult parts they aren't so entrenched in that world that all the jargon is so part of their vocabulary that they don't remember what it's like to not know what things mean so I definitely think that you don't have to be this like 100 times expert to speak about some topic Cool. Let's talk about the CFP process because I have never actually participated in one before. It's all like because I've only done like e-commerce related topics. I've been asked to speak at these very Mm. specific events. Yeah. So CFP stands for call for paper. It's essentially uh, um, like a conference stating to the public that they're looking for speakers. And the way that I've experienced a call for paper is typically it's like an online form, like a Google form, and you will go and you'll add a talk title, an abstract, so like, I don't know, around 150 to 200 words explaining at a high level what your talk is going to be about, maybe more detail about the talk itself, maybe the structure of what you want to go into. It might ask you the length of your talk or and if you've um, given it before and if you could link to the recording of it. I think those are the main things that they ask for. Allie, do you remember them asking anything else? That's pretty much it. There will sometimes be like additional information sections and if it's a workshop, what other things you need for the the room. But yeah, I think that that's a great overview of it. I'm so fascinated by the fact that it's called call for papers when there's nothing actually being like written down. It like, I come from like a background of, of like, science and research. So when you're going to a lot of these conferences, like the first ever conference I attended was called the obesity conference because it was all about obesity. And so there are a lot of like posters that people were presenting, but it wasn't just like you go into a room and listen to somebody talk and then you leave the room and you go to another session. It was much more like physical. You walk up and see what they're doing and what they're presenting. You read the research. So it's kind of interesting that it's called call for papers, even though well, it doesn't feel like you're doing that. It's because it has its roots in um, like scholarly articles for review and consideration for publication. So typically you would submit, you know, like a paper abstract and hopefully get it published. And that's kind of where it came from. Although I don't know why they didn't like change the name for this. That, yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, I think, you know, developers don't like naming things. Um, (laughs) I will say, too, so, like, I've also reviewed call for papers before, and if you're curious how some organizations do it, so a lot of conferences will pre-reach out to speakers. Um, They typically will pick a few speakers that they know they want, and they'll reach out and ask them to speak. So not every speaker you see speaking had to submit an application or call for paper. Those that do typically, I believe that they're done anonymously. So the way it was um, from the conference I reviewed was that like I got a spreadsheet with, I don't know, maybe 15 different call for papers, and I had to rank them uh, on different aspects. Like how interesting would this be or how relevant and rate them like related to each other or relative to each other, but they were all anonymous so that, you know, your identity or your um, social presence was not impacted. So I thought that was pretty cool. I don't know if they all do it that way, but. I like the idea of the, the reviews being blind because it definitely removes a lot of biases you may experience. Where do you all normally find, or I guess just Emma, where do you normally find open CFPs? <laughs> so I was actually invited to a Slack organization called ConfNerds. It was previously called, oh my gosh, something that sounded really inappropriate. Yeah, uh, Logaria or something like yes, that? Yes, yeah. yes. 
Yeah. I don't, it just doesn't sound very nice. I guess they renamed it. It has like a little rainbow poop with a sunglass as the, as the organization um, logo. I was invited to that by Natter, uh, Dabit. So that's a really good place if you can get invited to that organization. They have like a call for paper channel. But I would just recommend like Googling. There are a ton of different articles on like really good tech conferences to go to. Check those out and then follow them on Twitter because often they'll post like when they have a call for paper. That's how I find a lot of the ones that I want to go to. Yeah, there are some sites too that round them up. So Mozilla Tech Speakers has a site with open calls for papers. They have a Twitter account too. There's also Paper Call, which is a site where you submit calls for papers too. And they, you can set up search alerts so they'll email you every day with new CFPs that open up. There's another really awesome site too, and I'm forgetting the name off of the top of my head, but Another really great site for looking at them, too. We'll link them in the show notes. And then the last one is the Dev Avocado newsletter. It always has open CFPs in it, too. So we'll link all of that in the show notes. What was the site that you said rounded them all up? The first one is Paper Call, which has... Paper Call. You can submit CFPs through it. That's really cool, honestly. Yeah, totally. And so you can set up, like, alerts so you get emails every day about Mm. new ones. Love that. Yeah. Those are for the really dedicated ones. <laughs> I'm going to submit everything. I yeah. can't do that. Yeah. So now that we kind of delved into like this call for paper process, like let's talk about when you get your first acceptance. Because, you know, I don't know about you, Allie, but like I don't know how many conferences you applied for. I've applied for a lot, honestly, and I've gotten rejected from a lot. So if you get rejected, like please don't be discouraged. I would also suggest you really work on your call for paper because, you know, conferences receive a lot of applications. And if yours is not really well done or really detailed, it's probably going to get thrown out. Like find a little niche or find something really interesting, something catchy that's going to grab users' attentions. Because if you just write down React hooks, you know, that's not going to be necessarily unique and it's not going to grab the organizer's attention. So don't be discouraged if you get rejected, but also like do your due diligence and like actually make sure your CFP is good. But okay, tangent. I want to dive into like the benefits of speaking because there are a lot of them. Um, I'm going to share my favorite one, which uh, two of my favorites. So the first is getting to meet the people in the industry that I admire and have admired for a long time uh, and also just new people. Um, And the second is traveling because traveling is expensive and getting accepted to a conference is a very great way if they pay for your travel and your lodging um, to see the world. What about you guys? What are your favorite? I think the ability to teach and share what you know is really, really cool. I also like that you have to dive so deep into a topic. Like you can know something really, really well, but still to talk about it, you have to go so much deeper in your research. Like I've never really given a talk on something that I I don't know a lot about, but even still, you still, in order to fill up amount of time, you have to research and look at other people's opinions and read blog posts and all that. And it gives you this like very directed thing that you have to study and prepare for. And so it's nice for learning as well. Agreed. I also just like the like a sense of accomplishment that comes from finishing a talk as well. Like you just went, you put a lot of work into preparing this talk and putting it together and practicing. And by the time you're like at the end of it, you're like, yes, I did it. I didn't I'm still alive and I just spoke in front of some number of people and I got to share everything that that's interesting to me. I absolutely love that part. Yeah. And I think too, to Ali's point about like 
being able to teach and being able to learn something new by preparing a talk. Also, learning something new by listening to the other talks is really great because, like, I know for me personally, I would not be able to afford going to all these conferences between the travel and, like, the conference tickets. Like, I would not be able to afford it. But when you speak, typically they'll let you also watch all of the other talks, and so that can be a really great way to learn new things. For sure. I think also it's worth mentioning that speaking also opens up additional doors for you as well. You know, if you... Uh, are applying to speak at certain conferences, you know, you might be invited to speak at a future, future conferences because they, they heard your talk and they want you to give it at their conference. Or, you know, it could open up some doors for, for even like jobs because, you know, you're a subject matter expert in a certain area and there's a company out there who wants to hire you because they know that you know your stuff. Totally. I've gotten offered cool contract roles through speaking and also obviously a lot more speaking gigs too. So <laughs> for sure. So let's talk about the downsides of speaking. And one Emma already touched on, traveling is expensive. And you're not always getting, you know, your your travel and lodging covered by speaking. In fact, I don't think I ever have. I know that it, that's going to change for, or you guys might have a different answer. But yeah, I've never actually had travel or lodging cover when I've been speaking. And so that can get that can get kind of pricey. And also just the time commitment, not only for preparing a talk, but for the time you spend traveling and and you have to take time away from work and it, you have to make that up somewhere. Yeah, I I've been very, very fortunate that every conference I have spoken at has been covered travel and lodging wise. If not for that, I definitely could not afford to travel to these places and do all these amazing things. I would also say a downside that we don't discuss is, for me, it's it's burning out and imposter syndrome. I said yes to every single opportunity, basically, that I received this year in terms of speaking. And that was insane because this is not my day job. And so I was doing this all like, extracurricular. And I think I prepared three different talks from scratch, one of which was like 45 minutes long. And so it's really, really hard not to burn out, but also your confidence in yourself and your knowledge is severely questioned. At least it wasn't in my experience of like, am I smart enough to be like have people pay to come see me speak? It's a lot of pressure, especially knowing that like people have paid to be there and you want to make sure that you respect their time. Yeah, I totally relate to a lot of this. So actually for me, travel is kind of a downside to some extent. It's really cool to see different places in the world, but I get so panicked by flying and being in some other place, like a hotel and not being at my house and sometimes not knowing anybody in that country and not knowing anybody at the conference. And so that can be really anxiety provoking for me. And, you know, you do get to travel to these places, but it's not like you're having these free days where you can just do whatever you want. You mostly get a couple hours in between the conference dinner and the talks or something like that. So it's not like it's just a paid vacation somewhere. It's really you're going to speak and you're doing the conference and it's not like you're going to tour a bunch of areas. And then definitely feel the the burnout and time commitment. I have definitely overextended myself the last couple years, especially since it's not been really part of my job other than a couple months in there. And also the, the expenses at first too. I will only accept stuff that pay for travel and lodging just because my work does not pay for that at all. And also paying for those trips is just completely unrealistic. So I only accept those opportunities. But that that being said, there's still a bunch of incidental costs like Ubers and 
meals out and things like that. And so it's still expensive, even though the travel and lodging is usually covered. And then also, I think experiences at different conferences with the the people there can be really, really different as well. Like you can have these awesome positive experiences and have a ton of friendships that come from it and meet some really incredible people. But then there are also the people that that are really not great either and have had some really tough experiences with that as well and actually stopped speaking for a while because of that. So yeah, that's definitely a downside too. I think one of the anxiety-inducing parts for me as well is Q&A at the end of a talk. Yeah. I don't know what they're going to ask. And so I don't want to be like blindsided by a question I can't answer. And I know you experienced that with the, the, the GraphQL talk you did. You seem to handle it well, though. No, luckily that was like one-on-one. So I have actually explicitly asked conference organizers like for no Q&A. And a lot of them now are actually not including Q&A as part of the talk. There are a couple ways around this. One, make sure your talk like takes up the entire time. Two, just go to the conference organizers and tell them you're not comfortable doing a public Q&A. And you can also explicitly state to, hey, you know, um, you're welcome to come up to me after and talk with me more. Um, and if you don't know the answer to a question, there's no shame in just saying, you know, like, you know, I'm not sure. Or you don't even have to admit that. Just say, you know, you're welcome to come up after and chat with me a little more. I like that. So I think we should talk about speaker fees a little bit. I think so, too. This is taboo. It is taboo. And I think there's a lot of misconception around it. So this is something that I was curious about this year because, you know, given that this is not my day job and I have taken vacation days for every single conference I've traveled to, that's time that I could be spending with my family. And that's valuable to me. And so I have decided that um, I've had two parameters for my conferences next year. It's either A, I wanted to go to this conference for whatever reason, like maybe it's in a city or a country I've always wanted to visit, or maybe there are amazing speakers that I want to go see speak. Or two, I'm going to start asking for a speaker fee. The reason being I am giving up paid time off essentially to do these things. And I'm not certain why this is such a taboo subject to discuss because um you know Ali mentioned this earlier like I'm not rich and I think there's a misconception that like oh like you have a lot of followers like you're doing well you've got a lot of income from different places you must have a lot of money the the reality of it is a well it's really to be frank like I don't think it's anyone's business how you spend your money or or you know if you have a lot of money for me personally I have a lot of medical debt in the U.S. and for me all these side projects that I take on including now asking for speaker fees for some of these conferences goes towards trying to pay off my debt and that's not something I share publicly but when you just hear that oh this person's asking for a speaker fee you know they're high maintenance or they are just trying to milk the system for all the money my response to that is well I have a lot going on financially I don't make public. And it, in all honesty, I don't think that is anyone's business to know other than mine. Now, I know that's a hot take, but this is just where I'm coming from is my time is valuable. I, you know, I could be spending it with my family. I could be also making money to pay off my medical debt in other ways. And so if a conference is making money off of me, if they're selling tickets um, and using my platform to do that, uh, and they're a for-profit organization, um, I think it's fair. I think it's totally fair to ask for some of that profit if you're giving up your your time and, and all of that. So that's my hot take of that. I don't know. What do you two think? 
I think it's a it's an important thing to to point out though, especially like I I've never organized a conference before. I don't know what goes into it, but if you're making money from a, a conference, this is a business for you. And if you're having speakers come to that conference, those speakers are essentially contractors. They're working for you to to speak. And in, in that case, I feel like they should be paid. Again, I it is a hot take, but in the CFP process, I would treat that like a job application, you know, as far as wanting to make sure that, you know, you put your best into it. But if you're treating the CFP process as a job application, you should tr- treat the actual speaking engagement itself like a job as well. Like it's like you're you're contracting essentially. So, I'm I'm a big fan of speaker fees. I understand that not every conference has the budget to to pay for speakers. And in that case, you know, I'm, I'm totally fine with that. Like I, if, if I, if I find a topic that's really interesting to me and I want to give my time to speak, I'm not going to ask for a speaker's fee in that case, just because it's like a, a trade-off in that sense. But if they're going to be profiting off of me, I want to be compensated for my time. Yeah. So for me, if I'm doing local stuff, so stuff that's right by where I live, I'm totally fine not taking money and not being paid for travel or lodging or anything like that because it's helping my local community. And, you know, I like the opportunity to teach. I think that um, especially when I was starting out, speaking was really great for boosting my profile in the local community and like building up a brand, whatever that means. I hate that term, but you know, I think it probably makes sense to most people. So I think definitely at first, uh, it is really worth it. But I think of how many hours I've done of free work for people who have then made money off of that. And this isn't just speaking at conferences. This is uh, in general, like doing interviews for people and all of that. Like people have made so much money off of my free work (laughs) since I've (laughs) raised my profile. And I think that there's a lot that's really hard about that, especially like Emma said, like, that we have a lot going on in our lives too and it's not like just because we have a lot of followers we make huge amounts of money or anything like that so especially when we're getting asked non-stop to speak at things we have to somehow kind of weed through that and figure all of that out so I definitely think that speaker fees are important. I also just want to preface this real quick Kelly with the fact that I recognize we're all coming from this place of privilege of A, having these opportunities and B, having these conferences who who are able to essentially foot the bill for a lot of these things. So yes, this is us coming from a privileged perspective. I just want to acknowledge that. Not everyone has this privilege. Um, but at the end of the day, you also, if you're a content creator, you always have a right. It's your intellectual property. It's your hard work. And if and if you feel like you should be um, getting paid for that, there's seriously no shame in just stating that, you know, and if a conference wants to pay you, if they have the ability to pay you, you know, that's great. And I will also go on the other side of that, that if you are able to speak at conferences and not be paid for it and not take a speak and not have them pay for your travel and hotel and all that, that's also a total position of privilege that you have the funds to do that. And most people don't. And you're going to get a very specific demographic of speakers who are able to do that. Most speakers are not going to be able to. I think I've also seen people who can actually afford to travel to these conferences and all of that, you know, on their own dime, actually ask the conference to sponsor someone from an underrepresented group. I think that's a fantastic idea. So if you are able to actually afford these things, ask them to, you know, sponsor an attendee who otherwise might not be able to attend. I think that's a great idea. I love that. Especially, I know it's it's expensive, especially if you're, you know, let's say it's a 
a conference here based here in the US and there are a lot of like really, really, really talented people, let's say in Africa. And like, it'd be really great to have them come out to the conference and speak, but it is expensive to have that distance traveled. So to be able to sponsor somebody else is, is really, really great. And I think I, I absolutely love that idea. And one more thing I just want to just throw out there, because I remember there was a tweet maybe a few months ago. The fact that we all also have the privilege to travel internationally to speak at these conferences is something we don't really discuss. Coming from the United States, we have a lot of um, privilege that people from other countries don't. And I've seen on Twitter, in particular, people discussing the fact that, you know, if they come from a different country where the passport is not as strong for whatever reason, they can't actually attend a conference. And that's really awful. And I think we as speakers um, need to be, and as conference organizers too, please be mindful of the fact that, you know, if you ask someone from a particular country um, to speak, um, please help them with their, their visa or like the legal things that they need to actually get there. Because, not everyone comes from the United States. Not everyone has the ability to just hop on a plane and go through customs. It's not that easy. And as a speaker as well, recognize the fact that if you're able to just get on a plane and fly to Europe and speak and not think twice about it, like that is a huge privilege and not everyone has that ability. So, you know, I'm not sure exactly how we can help people who are not in, in the same position that we are. If there's something, if you know how we can help people in these positions, please let us know because it's something I personally wanted to learn more about. But I'm just, um, to be honest, I'm a little ignorant of how to do so. So if you know, please just send us like a DM because I'm genuinely interested in learning how to help. Agreed. I love that. So let's talk about how you prepare a talk. I've done a, a few of them, but both of you, once again, have much more experience than me. So how do you two go about preparing your talks that you're giving? So for me, I have actually, other than my very, very first talk, I've done all of my talks based off of blog posts. So I've had the blog post first and then transferred that over to a talk and so I have a nice outline for it. I've got the content kind of filled in and then can then extract the key information out into slides and add more stories and stuff like that. But uh, most of my speaking is done on an invited basis and based off of my blog posts and so they kind of translate over to that and that makes preparing a lot easier. That being said, there's a lot of practice that goes into it, a lot of refining the slides. I used to build my own slide decks from scratch using code but now I am transitioning over to Google Slides because they're so much easier. And so, yeah, lots of preparation, reciting things, having people look over stuff, making outlines, filling those outlines in, all of that. So it's a ton, a ton of work, but lots of research goes into it. Lots of outlining and extracting key bits and stuff like that. I know Dan Abramov had posted a blog about how he writes his conference talks. We'll definitely link that in the show notes. I, like Allie, like I think having a blog post written first is a great way to do it. And I approach these types, like if I'm giving a workshop, I'll also do this where I'll essentially create a blog post first because that serves as an outline. And at that point, you can look at it and say, does this make logical sense? I think one of the things that I've started doing, I, d I have actually read a lot of books about uh, how to give good talks. Uh, I, I can link... Again, a couple in Ooh, the show notes. I have a really good one. Did you just uh, demystifying public me? speaking? Did you? Yep. Did you? Rude. I sure did. <laughs> well, it was called what? Demystifying. Demystifying. Demystifying public speaking. We should do like a spinoff ladybug about books because we all read a lot. 
I we think do. we did, didn't we? Didn't we do one about books or no? I think we talked like we in talked our about, about us episode. We mentioned like oh, one little yeah. section on favorite books. But there's like this podcast that I listen to that's all like book reviews, and I feel like we would be good at that. Anyways, okay. Anyway, yeah, I love it. The book I'm referring to is one about TED Talks, and it I think it's like a case study essentially of like the top most popular TED Talks in history. So there are two TED Talk books. One is, I think, called Talk Like Ted. It wasn't a huge fan of that one. The second one is all about... Uh, let me just look it up real quick so that I can state it. Uh, it's called... So the first one was the official TED Guide to Public Speaking. I wasn't a huge fan of that. The other one... I'll have to link it in the show notes. Oh, Talk Like Ted. That Okay, I am right. I'm not crazy. <laughs> TED Talks, the official TED Guide to Public Speaking, was the one I wasn't a huge fan of. Talk Like Ted um, takes nine public speaking, public speaking secrets of the world's top minds, and so it examines and runs through these case studies of the best TED Talks to date, and I loved that one. And so I've tried to turn my tech talks even into having a narrative because if you have a story that follows from you know the first slide to the last slide, you're going to definitely hook the, the listener's attention. So I like to focus on the hook of my story, like what's the story I'm telling, and then from there, what logical pieces or what characters do I need to introduce? Like, think of it like you're writing a fiction book, right? I don't know. That's that's very prosaic. Yeah. Saranya Barrick, who does the Codeland Cop, that's amazing. She has a really, really great talk about speaking as well. And she talks about how it should be really a story so that it's it stands out from a blog post, essentially. So you're taking something on a journey. And I think in general with teaching, if you're not having somebody – actually practice with you and do exercise and stuff like that, it's not going to sink in. And so that's why I think hyper-technical talks can actually go be not the best in that format because people aren't going to learn super, super well in that format. So I think instead, if you're trying to get people excited, that's the best thing that you can do in a talk. For sure. I want to I wanna switch gears and quickly talk about what tools you can use to actually create your presentations because I get this question a lot. And I'm going to be honest, I'm like a serial tool user where like I'll literally try every possible tool out there for presenting so like I've done keynote I've done google slides I've done slides.com which is built off of reveal.js is it reveal so you can actually use code to edit your slides which is neat and there's also Dexet, which is a really cool like native application that you can use that comes with like a lot of visual presets but like I'm gonna be honest right now my biggest struggle when building a talk is like getting so focused on the visual design of my slides I am awful with that like I'll sit there for like 45 minutes um and just like screw around with like the font family and then I'm like I don't even have the content and I'm just sitting here like messing with the with the visuals right now I totally feel that. My initial side decks were built with, it wasn't Reveal.js, Impress.js, Impress.js, which is similar to Reveal.js, but it's a little bit funkier, like you can do some really interesting things with it. And then I had webs, uh, web components built on top of it that had all my personal brand stuff. And it was awesome. They looked super cool and like mimicked my personal site and it was awesome, but so much work. So I'm using Google Slides now. And I use Google Slides. I created a template and I just reuse it for all of my talks. It works. And it's great. <laughs> it's perfect. I can not spend too much time tweaking the actual design of the slide because I will be like Emma and spend more time doing that than actually adding the content into the slide deck. So yeah, Google Slides, really great option if you're not doing anything super. I just actually purchased a license today for this um, website called Envato, which is like one of those design everything asset sites and they have like a ton of keynote keynote templates as well as like 
Google slide templates. They also have like um, motion motion graphics and sounds. Like you pay like a monthly subscription or like a yearly subscription, and you get access to all of these templates, backgrounds, fonts, like anything you could ever want from Design Assets. Like they have it. So we'll link that as well down below because I'm gonna I'm definitely gonna check that out for my next conferences. I think another one you can look at, and I don't know if they actually have presentation decks they definitely do uh creative market so these are all one-off purchases so you can find like a specific presentation slide deck template that you like on you know based on whatever software you're using and it's no there's no annual fee that comes with that so you just buy it once and you're you're good to go creative market's really cool because you're also supporting a lot of freelance designers i am definitely gonna buy some things on here i'm a huge fan i use that for a lot of my website building too because they've got a bunch of design assets like svgs and stuff that are really nice so highly recommend (laughs) (laughs) and pretty fonts too like their fonts cool how about this day of speaking because that's kind of the the finale all of all of this all these hours go into applying and preparing and then you get the tiny little talk itself so what is our advice for doing the talk itself I think the most important one, and and this is based on my own experience, is when you're rehearsing, it's not just reading through your own slide deck. It's just like silently. You need to actually practice out loud and hear yourself say the words. If there, if you have somebody you can actually, you know, present your talk to, especially if you're just getting started and learning how to do these these uh, conference talks, if you can actually present it to somebody else. Uh, really, really useful because they can provide feedback, provided that they're the kind of person who is going to, you know, not hold back and tell you when you said something that doesn't make any sense or just comes off wrong. I find that to be really, really helpful. That's awesome. Yeah. So my first talk ever, I gave at a local meetup. I actually forgot to breathe. And like by the end of it, it sounded like I had run a marathon. It was actually quite mortifying. So <laughs> if you like actually take time to breathe and additionally bring water. I don't know. I envy speakers who don't need water, but I get up there and I'm like, I've trekked through the desert for a month. So I always bring water. <laughs> Typically, I'll try to bring one with a straw if possible, um, just because then I'm not like having to open a water bottle and just everyone had to watch me. Actually, my first real conference talk, I had to like walk across the stage and actually like pour water into a glass and drink. And like everyone (laughs) had to sit there and watch me and it was terrifying. So I would say those are my two biggest. But to your point about rehearsing, even if you think you're the world's best public speaker, you still have to rehearse. Like I took this for granted and I got a little too confident in myself. I'm like, I don't need to rehearse. And then you speak in front of people and you're like, you forget how to speak especially this is something I totally took for granted too but if you're giving a conference talk in your non-native language or like a second language definitely also rehearse and also props to people who give conference talks in a non-native language like I have enough trouble speaking English so totally so I have advice here too so first I go over my slides a couple times morning of so before my talk so I just have like a last run of looking through my notes, looking through my slides, maybe tweak some things because that happens unless you're, you had to turn in your slides early, which happens too. Um, I also always, this is probably a personal one, but I always dress in something that makes me feel confident. So something that I feel good in and that usually dress up a little bit, wear shoes that are comfortable too, shoes that you can walk in not eight inch high heels that would be painful and terrifying to walk around on stage in those but if you're comfortable with them uh all the props to you super impressive and do my hair and makeup and all that too 
And then right before, I blast Britney Spears music because it makes me feel confident and (laughs) calms me down a little bit. So I just listen to that on repeat. And so that's kind of my advice. It's a little bit untraditional, but for me, it really, really helps out to feel my best in a lot of different aspects. I have one more thing to add to rehearsing. So people have different approaches to practicing their talks. Some people don't prepare any kind of notes for themselves. Some people prefer like little note cards with bullet points that they use like just like the speaker notes section on on the presentation software. Some people will practice basically memorizing their talk. It's going to vary from person to person what works best. Um, I will say that I've, I've seen and I've known from experience that if you go the memorization route, it can really throw you off if you're expecting to know everything from, from beginning to end and have every single word memorized because when you forget a word, it kind of like makes you stumble and it, it becomes a little bit more difficult to kind of catch up from there. I, that, yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of speaker notes just like on the little the speaker notes section on the presentations. Is that what it's called? Just speaker notes? Yeah, and a lot of conferences will have fancy setups too. So you have your speaker notes on the screen in front of you and your slides behind you and they have this like really nice thing. So yeah. And this might be my lack of experience, but somebody once told me that you're going to remember about 80% of what you actually want to talk about. And that was, that held true for every single talk that I've given to date. So I, I kind of plan accordingly when I'm planning my my talk to forget some of the things that I'm, I'm I intended to talk about and kind of add that into my my overall time. I don't know if you two have the same experience or if that's just a very very me thing. Yeah, yeah, and I also just want to say too, like you're the only person who knows what you wanted to say, and if you forget to say something or like you say something maybe not the way you wanted to phrase it, like own it because no one knows what you were planning to say, and don't beat yourself up about it. Oh, also, technology always fails when you're always. speaking. I don't know what it is. <laughs> it's, like, magical. Like, your internet will go out. Your computer won't hook up to the projector. Like, that's not just you. Don't worry. It happens. And so be prepared for it to some extent. But at some point, you, you can't be too yeah. prepared. Well, it yeah. just happens. It's not your fault. It happens to everybody. Yeah, please download your slides locally, too, just to have in case. And also, like, it's not a bad idea just to have, like, one or two things that you could banter about if you need to up on stage, like, live in front of people. Like, come up with a couple topics in your head. You're like, yeah, like, I, you know, your favorite pumpkin recipe or something. I don't know. I don't know. I like pumpkin. So, like, I would be fine talking about that. But, um, you know. I'm really big on self-deprecating humor. <laughs> I had the computer completely freeze up on me 10 minutes into a talk in April. And I had to restart the computer. And it was an old system. And it was not my computer. And so, it took about five minutes to get back up and running. So, I basically had all the self-deprecating humor and banter for five minutes. So, yes, that is really good advice there to, to plan for the unexpected. Another thing to note is, you know, Emma gave that that live coding talk. There are certain conferences that they will say you cannot do anything live coding. So it's really good to record demos of what it is that you intended to show just in case you can't do the live coding for whatever reason, you do have a fallback. Yeah, and also the Food Network approach for demos too, where you have the finished project that you can pull out just in case your live coding goes wrong. You can still be like, oh, well, we have an error, but this is what it would have looked like. Food Network <laughs> approach. If they love summer, that. Like, <laughs> I thought you were going to say, have free samples just to satiate the audience. I'm going to remember that one. Oh, that's a great idea, too. If you want to feed me at a conference talk, I mean, by all means. That would be super fun. I am still waiting for spaghetti. 
In any case, I think as a last note, we should maybe discuss how do you actually get started? Where, what is the first step that you can take if you want to speak at a conference? I think speaking at meetups, like local meetups is a really great first step. It's a smaller audience. It's usually, you know, people are not paying to be there. So there's, there's that pressure that's been removed as we've discussed. There's pressure that comes with, you know, people paying to see you speak. And it's just really good practice. Yes. And meetup organizers are always looking for speakers. They can never find people as a former meetup organizer. So you don't have to go through this like super absurd CFP process that has a 3% accept rate. You, If you want to speak at a meetup, the chances are they'll be all for it. I also would say start applying for CFPs, but something that I also do that would be a huge piece of advice to anybody listening is I have a repository on GitHub that is public with all of my CFPs in it. So you can go to that GitHub repository and look at it. And so what that does is that I get a lot of invited speaking off of that because maybe the talk that I submit isn't perfect, but one of my other talks in that repository does fit the conference better. And you can also social media that. So you can tweet it out or you could post it on dev or something like that. And maybe some onlooker could see that and you could get a speaking gig through that instead. So plus you get to show people what you're doing too. So highly recommend having a repository of CFPs. I have one just side comment to make here. If you're not interested in speaking at conferences, that is totally fine. You don't need to speak at conferences to further your career. It is not a requirement whatsoever. If if public speaking is not a thing for you, that's that's fine. Don't feel pressure to do it if you don't want to do it. If you don't want to attend conferences, that's also totally fine. I don't go to conferences unless they're e-commerce related. And I, Ellie and Emma really wanted me to go to All Things Open, but I decided to stay home instead. Rude. We missed you. I did Photoshop myself into that picture and it was super creepy. <laughs> I won't even add it to our show notes. You can you can go back through Twitter history and, and find that if you're really curious because it is Please a don't. super creepy picture and I was really Please proud of it. Please do not do that. <laughs> anyway, if you like this episode, tweet about it. We'll select one tweeter to win Ladybug stickers each week. If you know someone who should be a guest on our podcast, please visit our contact page on ladybug.dev to submit a name. Now, we are taking a break for the holidays, and we'll be back with a brand new season of the Ladybug podcast on January 6th. So thank you so much for all of your support in our first season, and we can't wait to show you what we have lined up next. Thanks again to Shopify for sponsoring this episode. See you in 2020. Whoa.